Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Hey everybody, it's June 18th, 2022, and welcome to the weekly Mormon News Roundup where Al and D-Days ruminate on the Great and Spacious Beehive. How's it going, Al? I am doing pretty dang good this weekend. How's D-Bays? Oh, I'm doing very, very well. Things are really heating up in the Great and Spacious Beehive. Uh, we're going to analyze Netflix Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey Episode 2, part of the miniseries. We're also going to dissect who is the most popular LDS general authority. We're going to try to solve that once and for all. We're going to bring you listeners up to speed on the latest changes in tithing categories for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're going to cover the first ever BYU-approved on-campus LGBTQ demonstration and introduce you to the Mormon, quote, marriage addict, end quote, mom, who has been married 11 times. We've got a lot to go through, don't we, Al? It's a busy, busy week, and you aren't kidding. It's heating up out here. It was a cold spring, and now we've got fires all around the Salt Lake Valley. Most of the state of Utah is running out of water. Um, and, it, yeah, it, it's summer's here. It's hot, finally. <laughs> well, these are all prophesied, Al. This is all in the book of Revelations. It's just showing to us all that this is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is all prophesied. This is all according to the plan, correct? That's true. That. It's just, if, uh, yeah, it definitely is. Hey, let's follow up from uh, last week here. Uh, uh, I saw a tweet uh, that's going to be in our show notes here that I thought was interesting, that uh, we've been following up on some of the gun violence uh, episodes that have really, uh, really hurt a lot of people, uh, including the Uvalde, Texas, and some of the other mass shootings that have happened. And I saw this tweet that came out, and I thought it was a very interesting perspective. It's in our show notes on June 10th, 2022 at 6.13 p.m., from uh, at Potato Mormon. And the, uh, the tweet here, it says, perspective on October 30th, 1838 at Hans Mill, Missouri, 18 Mormons were killed by approximately 250 militiamen firing single shot muskets. That is three fewer dead than were killed at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas by one shooter with an AR-15. And it's yeah. showing the Hans Mill site there with uh, the church, uh, you know, owns that site. And it shows <laughs> in memory of the victims of the Hans Mill massacre, uh, way back in 1838, and it's just showing the difference in between what it took to kill uh, a few people back in 1838. It took 250 people firing single-shot muskets, and now that can be done in just a matter of minutes with the AR-15 rifles. Absolutely. We're definitely not dealing with the same kind of firearms that were available uh, when the Constitution, specifically the Second Amendment, was written. We, we're dealing with some very different technologies some very different weaponry. Yeah, and especially some of these, especially if you upgrade some of these AR-15s, you put on uh, bump stocks, you, uh, you know, mm -hmm. increase the uh, capacity of the magazines, yeah. you know, you put on uh, body armor to make it impossible for the police to, or very difficult for the police to take you out. You have hundreds of rounds at your disposal. You're practicing being able to change out these magazines in just a matter of seconds. I mean, yeah. the amount of carnage that an AR-15 can do versus a musket is, uh, oh. it's got to be an order of magnitude of maybe 100 to 1. I, I suspect if you had even one AR-15 inside Hans Mill where they were boarded up in the blacksmith shop, I think that you would have had a very different outcome with the Huntsville massacre and the numbers would have been very skewed to the other side. You would have had an obliterated mob attacking from the outside that uh, 
Yeah, and that's just one AR-15. Yeah, it's got it's a ratio of an AR-15, 100 people with single-fire musket shots mm-hmm. who are uh, not very well trained, or one person with virtually unlimited ammunition with an AR-15. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think that the one person with the AR-15 might have the might have the edge. I mean, it is just amazing. Oh, for and sure. Terrifying, terrifying what these weapons can do. Oh, they're su- they're built to be super accurate, super powerful, super deadly. That's that's why they were designed, and it's uh, everything in that technology is behind that. And, and you know, it appears that President Biden is, uh, you know, he's he's signaling that he wants to he wants Congress to reinstate that assault weapons ban that we had back in what was that about 1994? Yeah, yeah, about 1994 is when they instituted that, and uh, they re- they lifted that in the early 2000s, I think. Yeah, it was about eight or ten years, as I recall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, you know, and we discussed this before. The the actual studies, it's very hard to know if that gun ban, assault weapons gun ban, drove mass shootings down or up because there's so many factors that are associated with any single mass gun shooting. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of mixed studies that show, you know, Republicans, when they talk about it, they say, well, you know, guns, uh, the the gun ban didn't necessarily reduce gun shooting. So, you know, gun violence. Mm -hmm. So why would we want to do it again? Well, yeah, I mean, there's that whole saying of, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. But a lot of times what we're seeing is that people that kill people use guns to do it. Yeah, they do. And uh, I've also been I've never been to Hans Mill, but I have been to the uh, Bear River Massacre up in northern. Have you been there, too? Al? Yeah, it's um, let's see. It's located up in Franklin County, just northwest of Preston, Idaho. Um, so it's, well, it's more close to Preston. It's just outside of Preston, but it's on the road that goes between Preston and Pocatello. Um, I've been past that several times. Um, and, uh, you know, one of these days I really need to stop and take a good look around cause it's, that, that's a sad story of, uh, Mormon history too. The Bear River Massacre. Sure was. And when I went there, there, it was a number of years ago, it must've been 15 or 20 years ago. There was virtually no, there's no monuments. There was no really information and that's what the church also you know is kind of famous for they didn't put up a monument to um the mountain meadow massacre until i want to say about i don't know about 15 years ago there wasn't even a monument to that yeah i think i think you're right yeah and i don't believe when i i'm definitely sure that when i went through for the bear river massacre that there was no monuments to that the church does not like to call attention to some of these negative aspects of church history in any way I believe that they do have some sort of a, a it, I think there's some sort of a monument there. It's not been put there by the church for sure. Ah. I believe it was put there by the Shoshone Bannock uh, nation. Oh, the, Yeah, I, I think that they put a, a marker there. And there's definitely one of those roadside um, signs. So as you drive past, you can see, you know, you can pull over and read about it. You know, well, just like they have, a, this is an, a point of interest or a historical landmark. Um, another thing is if uh, you just drive a little further up that road, you see the uh, Red Rock Pass uh, through which Lake Bonneville drained into the Snake River and then flowed out. So, you know, there's a it's really an interesting route. Anybody that's driving through that part of the country really ought to uh, drive up through Preston, Idaho, stop and see the Bear River Massacre site and stop and see that Red Rock Pass. Uh, some really significant parts of history. 
Well, it's interesting that the church uh, does, if you think about other violent uh, episodes in church history, if you think about Carthage jail, the church mm-hmm. quickly bought Carthage jail and they have full-time missionaries manning Car- uh, Carthage jail. Yes, so they do. If it's, if it's an item of church history that reflects negative on church history, then they don't really erect a lot of monuments and they don't want to bring a lot of attention to it. But the Carthage jail, well, that's the assassination of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, they, they're going to you know, say, hey, this is where he was killed for his belief and he was a martyr of God. And therefore, we're going to buy it and we're going to you know, have people manning there full time uh, 365 days of the year. Yep, they they did the same thing with Liberty Jail. They uh, purchased that. Did they move Liberty Jail um, to a different site? I, I can't remember. I don't but know. We'll have to we'll have to. Follow I, up on I, I do know that. Week. Yeah, I know the church owns it, and you know that was where there was that great suffering. That uh, a lot of the church leaders were being held after the the Mormon War. Um, you know, in Missouri uh, back in the eighteen hundreds, and that's where they were held. So. You know, you know what, Al, though, the what is the most violent episode in all of uh, not Latter-day Saint, but Mormon history? What is the most violent thing that has ever happened to Mormon history? I'm not talking about the flood because yeah. that, that doesn't count. But there is a huge violent episode in Mormon history that is not even more violent than the Mountain Meadow Massacre. I'm trying to put you on the spot here. OK, I'm boy. Yeah, because we have not talked about this beforehand. Um, I'm going to say, let's see, the most violent episode. I'm going to give you a hint here. The church owns it and they have missionaries there. Okay. Church owns it and there's missionaries there. Uh, is this the, the Hill Camorra? Oh, yes, I mean, the Hill Camorra. It is. Okay. <laughs> so the so Hill Camorra. Millions of dead people that are supposed to be there. That Remember, the Jaredites were wiped out at the Hill Camorra. That's right. Uh, and that was five million, according to the Book of Mormon, plus women and children. So, yeah. I, I, or maybe it was actually I think it was two million plus women and children. I correction. Yeah. Two million plus women and children. So we're talking about about five million people killed by the Jaredites on the Elkhorn. And then with the Nephites and Lamanites, the dead people. <laughs> they also had the last battle of the Nephites and the Lamanites there where somewhere around four hundred and fifty thousand people died. Mm-hmm. So these are literally the two largest land battles that have occurred on earth mm-hmm. took place at the hill camorra and remember we have first presidency letters in 1990 where members have written in and said hey what about that we've heard about the two hill camorra thing is, is that a mm-hmm. thing and we have first presidency letters back in 1990 that say the hill camorra is where it all took place so yes when it comes to violent church history the church is very it's very interesting what the church's response to it is sometimes they, you can serve an entire mission at the Hill Camorra. Yeah. You can have a whole mission at Carthage, but they don't man anything at Mountain Meadows. They don't man anything at the Bear River Massacre. They don't. It's very interesting how the church uh, approaches all of these violent episodes in their ha- yeah. in the past. Well, I know that uh, the church really tried to distance itself for a long time. They, they flat out denied for a long time that the church had any involvement at Mountain Meadows, but it came out uh, that, you know, the facts were the facts. The, the church really was behind, it, well, the church membership, I should say, because I, I know there would be a lot of people that would say that the, this is still in question. Did Brigham Young uh, command it? Um, I, I tend to believe that there's enough evidence to say yes. And if they're, you know, both beforehand and after the fact to say that, yes, uh, this came down from Brigham Young. The, um, the, but there is that question. Did it happen? Because there's no real, it wasn't written down. Um However, on the other hand, you know, you, you look at, uh, you know, 
you look at a lot of Latter-day Saint history, and there's a lot of violent things that happened that, you know, was this commanded by the church? We don't know. Um, but I, I, I tend to think that when it comes to uh, Mountain Meadows, that's pretty well locked that the church was responsible. But they're still playing that same game with the Bear River Massacre of, oh, well, that was the military that was uh, that murdered the Shoshone. Yeah, but who sent the military up there in the first place? Who who told the military that this was a violent band of Indians that was uh, attacking settlers in Cache County? Right, and, and who yeah. and who uh, Porter Rockwell was the guide up there? Was he a rogue agent or was he dispatched for uh, as an official emissary? Yeah, for him being a rogue agent, he sure was uh, um, involved with a lot of the very top members, uh, very top leadership of the church at the time. Well, he was, and he had a history of being uh, very violent, you know, uh, with the Governor Boggs uh, assassination. Uh, they, they never did prove that it was him. Uh, they had, you know, he's a very shadowy figure, so they have been able to prove a lot of these things. And, you know, along with the along with the Mountain Meadow Massacre, there's no smoking gun that shows that Brigham Young ordered it or condoned it. That's the issue for me, at least. Yeah. Mm hmm. Um, but that's a follow up from the violence from last week. Uh, let's uh, let's move on to our first uh, feature article uh, here, which is uh, keep sweet, pray and obey. And that's from the uh, new uh, series, which has been released on Netflix. And we're uh, doing uh, reviewing episode two during this time. So episode mm -hmm. two from this covers the fundamental Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And this article was released on June 14th, 2022 on inews.co.uk. This is the second episode. So it traces the basically the foundation, the entire miniseries traces the foundation of fu the fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from basically its inception up until uh, the present day. So this particular episode, episode two, takes it from basically when Warren Jeffs took over around the Winter Olympics time frame up until just before he was arrested. So this is talking about around the time frame of 2002 to 2006 mm -hmm. and what he did uh, to the religion during that time. Uh, what did you get from uh, episode two there, Al? Okay, so to recap with episode one, episode one was pretty much about Rulon Jeffs, uh, Warren's dad. The previous prophet, who was supposed to be the last prophet, according to uh, what the teachings had been. Then episode two is where Warren takes over. I thought that episode two was really compelling. Um, and what I like the most about it is that Warren Jeffs, um, in the way that uh, he is portrayed in here, they take these pictures where he just looks creepy. Even when he's looking happy and like he's having a good time, he just looks as sinister and creepy as can be. He's, he looks as like a snake just glaring out at you. And practically what I see is like his tongue just kind of whip out and in real quick, you know, just like he's so, he's so slimy looking. But it's all, but a lot of this is given from the perspective of his victims. And that's something I really, really appreciate about this uh, show as compared to Under the Banner of Heaven is this gives a lot more perspective from the uh, standpoint of the victims who found themselves caught uh, up in Warren Jeff's web and the whole web of the FLDS and um, that uh, how they got out. So you hear there's some sad stories in here, um, you know, little uh, love stories of that ended tragically. I mean, this is stuff that Romeo and Juliet type stuff. Of uh, that kind of love story that man it's heartbreaking definitely yes, it need is. to see it if you haven't watch it 
This is a must. This is a must watch. I, I don't care what your feelings are about the church, whether you're in, whether you're out, whether you've never been a member or whether you don't know anything about the FLDS. This is a must watch. Yeah. So, you know, after Rulon Jeff died in 2002, Warren mm-hmm. Jeff then consolidated power in the church because there was no clear succession plan. And how yeah. did he do that? It was by marrying all of Rulon's 65 wives and taking those mm-hmm. 65 children into his own household. Yeah. Now, here's here's another thing of that they point out, Dives, is that he married. OK, so with the within the FLDS, they did a lot of like moving wives around and children around. So if 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 a priesthood holder got excommunicated and kicked out, then they would strip him of his wives and children and they would give those wives and children to somebody else to raise. And so like the way that the kids perceived their the mothers in these in this group everybody was their mother right and so they 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 didn't have necessarily one particular mother they had the mom that gave them birth sure but they looked to all these women as mothers and warren jeffs married a lot of his dad's wives including his own mothers and that's where we get real creepy (laughs) yep yep and towards the end of episode two that's where you start seeing that warren jeffs is first of all He's assigning out these marriages. He is one of this control of the entire FLDS community of 15,000 people. If you want to get married, you have to go through him. And he starts assigning marriages out at very even younger and younger. This used to be somewhat of an anomaly, but he made it more common practice where 14 year olds were getting married to Warren Jeffs himself. He would take them to Nevada. He would Mm -hmm. marry them in a sham marriage that would not be, you know, recorded in any way, shape or form. Yeah. uh, you know, th- those those individuals were, uh, you know, raped and tortured and mentally, you know, uh, just the mental, you know, the struggles that they went through is just horrific. Yeah. I'm not sure if Warren Jeffs just understood so much about uh, the way to control people by controlling what they can wear and, you know, how they can do their hair. I'm not sure if it's that or if he had a fetish. But the whole, you know, prairie dress and, uh, you know, pompadour hairstyles with the uh, intricate weaves and braids in the back, that was um, enforced strictly by Warren Jeffs. Under yeah. his father, Ruan, people, you know, as long as they were uh, covered, they could wear pretty much wherever they want. Specifically, yeah. women could wear wherever they want. Right. Yeah. I mean, people but, can wear jeans under Ruan Jeffs. People could still wear jeans. People could still have reasonable hairstyles. People could still have mm-hmm. jobs outside of the FLDS community. Yeah. You know, Warren just really radicalized everything and everyone. Mm-hmm. He really ramped up the control and really, uh, you know, made life a living hell for a lot of the people there. Yeah, you know, what is right. one of the most difficult parts about being in the FLDS, especially during this time frame, to, from 2002 yeah. to 2006, the fact that the church owned all of the pro- owns all of the property. They called it the uh, what did they call it? The perpetual. Oh, yeah. Uh, the UEP. It yeah, was um, United Effort Plan. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So that's been since broken up. They you know, the, the government came in and broke up the UEP. But at yeah. that time, Warren just controlled everything. Your home, you, who, who you marry, where you go, yeah. what you do. You want to talk about a high level of control. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, he, he really ruled that place with an iron fist. And they talked about in the episode how actually Hilldale and Colorado City were the most lawless uh, places in the entire country for a number of years because the sheriff's department really 
they were uh, they, they really didn't do anything unless Warren Jeffs told them to do it. So you couldn't get justice. You couldn't. It was like wild, wild west back in the 1800s. And, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Deadwood, South Dakota. Yeah. I mean, a, a really good uh, comparison, uh, I would say, is like the way that the scouting program was integrated with uh, the LDS church that, you know, being a scoutmaster in a lot of wards was a calling. So, you know, being the sheriff of Hilldale was kind of a calling, you know, right. and being a police officer was, you know, almost like, yeah, a church calling that this is how you're going to serve the community. And by serving the community, we mean the interests of the leadership of the FLDS church. <laughs> right. So if there were underage marriages or there were Ill- illegalities uh, going on in the city, well, you'd go to the police department and unless Warren Jeffs told him to do something, nothing would happen. It was a totally place where you had no personal rights apart from uh, what the Warren Jeffs and the church told you to do. Yeah. And I also found it very interesting that unlike uh, if you imagine back to the founding of the, the Church of Christ back in 1830, which eventually became the Church of the Latter-day Saints, which eventually became the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. If you think about the founding in 1830, it was just uh, Joseph Smith and the first elder, Oliver Cowdery. There were no yeah. apostles, I believe, until, what, 1835. I believe that's right. Yeah. So and that's the same way with FLDS. They don't have apostles. They don't have that structure. It's all rooted in one person. And it's kind of like when Joseph Smith started the church uh, back in 1830, almost he basically held basically all of the keys and basically had all of the power. Yeah, this is this is a show that I think that the faithful LDS really need to watch it Um, just because it I mean, for for them saying, well, well, we have nothing to do with the FLDS. It's a completely different offshoot. Well, the, if you look at the FLDS, you will see a lot closer uh, version of how uh, Joseph Smith's church originally was set up. Yeah, I mean, he wanted a city of Zion. He wanted, mm-hmm. you know, they tried in Kirtland uh, communal property. This was yeah. basically, you know, the FLDS is really an extension of Joseph Smith's vision for yeah. how, how things would be. And you say, well, also Joseph Smith, he had underage brides. He controlled marriages. He you know, sent people out on missions uh, and then mm-hmm. married their wives. It, it was a very similar feel to how Warren Jeffs controlled things. For sure. And when you hear Warren Jeffs talk and the cadence in his voice, I have to feel like that cadence is handed down generation to generation and I mean, within the LDS church, everybody knows that there's a certain general conference voice and a certain cadence that um, both the men and the women use. You know, this the women use a super high pitch, uh, sweet voice, just as sugary sweet as can be. And the men use this very structured and solemn and, uh, you know, uh, very uh, what? Well, um, very earnest tone in their in their speaking well uh rulon jeffs warren jeffs the you know leaders of the flds they've got a very sanctimonious tone as well and they speak very um very lofty in the way that they speak and very uh very what condescending or self-righteous sounding it's really something to hear um warren jeffs on these recordings and it gets more sinister as the thing goes. <laughs> I, 
sick and twisted because I listened to another couple of his lectures that have been recorded this last week. Mm-hmm. I just find it absolutely fascinating because, like I said in our last episode, it's like taking a, walking a page back into early church Mormonism. It's a very simple faith. Follow, mm-hmm. the, pre- follow the priesthood, listen, pray, and obey. I mean, keep sweet, pray, and yeah. obey. follow the priesthood. The Lord will never lead the, the church astray. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, there's no nuance in any of this. There's no double speak. It's just it's all laid out right there. Polygamy is God's way. And we are the chosen generation. And uh, mm-hmm. Jesus is coming soon. I mean, this is very similar to the way that Joseph Smith would have talked and what he would have said. Oh, certainly. And I, I feel like the the current LDS church, um, the Bergamite church in Salt Lake, when it comes to like general conference their messages have gotten a little bit more complex sounding but they really um even though they sound more complex fundamentally on the the very most basic uh level the topics are very much the same the message is very much the same so there's been some adjustment over the the decades since the splitting between the lds and the flds but that's the topics are are pretty similar yeah, you can splice in Warren Jeffs, a lot of his sermons directly into an old general conference talk, and people would not be able to tell the, the difference if they didn't know it. For I sure. mean, a, a lot of his sermons. And this is, the, this is the second most popular show on Netflix right now. This is getting a lot of airtime. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's blowing up. And I, I think it was national news when they stormed the, uh, when, when the Fed stormed the, the compound there in Texas. Which, you know, that's going to come in. That's not this episode, but uh, we'll, we'll be talking about that when it comes. But um, I don't think people really understood what was going on. And you're going to get a really good inside view from the people that were there that, uh, when it was stormed. Uh, so the, the, this is going to get really interesting. Uh, keep, keep watching. Stay tuned. And we're going to be talking about that one in weeks to come. I cannot recommend this series more highly. It is definitely one of the best miniseries that I've seen in a while. I cannot wait until we're done with this show recording because that means I get to watch episode three. That's how much I'm looking forward to it. So I'm giving it five stars. Go out there and take a listen. Yeah, Dives, you definitely did this one the right way. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm just such, such a binge watcher. I couldn't, uh, you know, stifle myself and my wife from watching it all the way through. We, we sat and we watched the whole thing thing in one sitting. It's that easy to watch. It's really well made. And you know, the, uh, any true believing uh, members of the church, they should watch this because this does not reflect poorly on the LDS church. This reflects poorly on the FLDS. But really, the LDS church, by comparison, they're some of the heroes in this story. Because yeah. these are the people that open their homes to welcome in, say, the lost boys that were kicked out of the FLDS community right. uh, in order to make room for the there to be a surplus of young women to marry off to the leaders. Yeah. So this is something that everybody should be watching. Yes, indeed. It should be. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to uh, take a, a, a step in a different direction. We're going to head over to Twitter for mine. Um, so what? We had a suggestion that was uh, handed out there where we wanted to find out who the most popular apostles were on Twitter. And I took it even a step further. I went to Facebook as well. So I think that we have a couple of different um, generations that are attracted to Twitter and Facebook. So I wanted to see the comparison and the contrast. 
So what we have found here is I went onto Twitter and looked up Russell M. Nelson all the way down to Ulysses uh, Soares and um, just got the the numbers of uh, followers that they have on Twitter. And then I went over to Facebook and I did the same thing. How many people oh. are following them on, on Facebook? Let me give you, I, I don't know the answer to your research, Al, but can I give you a prediction and we'll see if it's correct? Please do. Let's go with okay. this. All right. So my, my prediction is that uh, Elder Uchtdorf is going to be up on top. President Nelson, President Oaks will also be on top. President Irene, those are going to be in your top four. And then maybe uh, Elder Bednar. And then uh, along the, the least popular would be the, 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 new, the most newly called general authorities. That is my prediction. You know, you're, you're not bad there, Dives. you got a really good mind for how the uh, public uh, psyche or persona works. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, um, so uh, President Nelson, he's not number one. Dieter Uchtdorf is number one. Uh, Dieter Uchtdorf on Twitter has 308.3 thousand followers. Russell M. Nelson has 234.4 thousand followers. Um, you were wrong with Dallin Oaks and Henry Eyring. These guys are oh. never as popular. Um, oh. Dallin Oaks, one of the lesser popular people, um, at 199.5 thousand followers. He didn't even get up to the 200,000 mark. Henry Eyring, he went above the 2,000 mark, 200, or yeah, 205.7 thousand. Um, then you're right. There's kind of a descending order. However, David Bednar and Jeffrey Holland are neck and neck uh jeffrey holland is actually a thousand fewer followers than david bednar david bednar's got 259.2 thousand mm. jeffrey holland's got 259.1 um and russell ballard kind of got left behind a little bit uh 214.4 thousand um so you know not not as popular as uh as uh elder bednar but then it it pretty much uh, runs downhill uh, as you would expect 134 is 150 uh, all the way down to Ulysses Soros trails behind because he's the newest at 65.5 thousand now keep in mind this is Twitter and I think that Twitter is more the uh, more our generation's social media platform Um, this is where people that are kind of what in their 30s to 40s would be Um, So now we're going to go to Facebook. And I feel like Facebook uh, is where you get a little bit more of the older demographic, where you get people in their 40s, 50s, um, you know, and up. Uh, this right. is their kind of social media. So over there, we have something different happening. We've okay. got, um, let's see, Russell M. Nelson leads the pack with 907,800. Uh, uh, let's see. Yeah. Yeah, wow. 907,800 uh, followers on Facebook. He's got a lot. He's very popular on Facebook. Wow. Um, and, you know, you we kind of follow a similar pattern. We've got Dieter Uchtdorf at 776,000. Yeah, 776,000. Um, then Elder Oaks isn't nearly as hated amongst the uh, the older generations. He's 686,000. Ah, yeah. Henry Eyring, he's 454,000. M. Russell Ballard, 331,000. Jeffrey Holland, 445,000. Uh, David Bednar 
more popular than most of them. He's trailing behind uh, Dieter Ugdorp at 687,000. So he's not just your favorite puzzle. He's a lot of people's favorite puzzle too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a little bit of a dark horse from behind here. Ronald A. Razband. We dropped we drop down in between like from Quentin Cook to Neil L. Anderson. We're in the 200,000 range. Ronald Rasband has 414,000 followers on Facebook. I'm surprised by that. And here's the, here's the other real kicker, okay? Our two non-white apostles that are at the very back end, Garrett W. Gong and Ulysses Soares, yeah. they both are sitting around 340,000 followers on Facebook. Which is, the, the, the low guy was uh, Dale G. Renlund at 163,563 followers. So these guys actually went uh, and got followers ahead. I'm not sure if that's because of the the non-white community within the LDS church. Um, but I, I think it, it speaks to something very interesting. Um, something that I'm going to uh, point out a little bit later t- as well. But I think that you have some really good people in the church. But I think that the church itself is re- is fairly racist. However, these guys like... I think the church is accepting of people of different races or different sexualities or different uh, customs or backgrounds and cultures than they come from there. I think that there's just a church that um, is got a, a hand up towards other cultures or different uh, races. And that's kind of been the way it's been all the way going back. But it seems to me that on the bright side, you've got some good people that are, um, that they like people that are different from them. So that's exciting. Let me ask. So you think that Elder Gong and Elder Suarez are pretty low, both of them. And you think that the reason for that is not necessarily because they're somewhat newly called. They've only been in mm-hmm. for, I don't know, five, 10 years at the, to- at the most. But you think yeah. that it's because uh, members of the church uh, are, are not as accepting of apostles uh, from more diverse backgrounds? Seem, seems to be, at least um, the younger ones. I'm surprised because the older ones on Facebook are more accepting. They don't seem to be all that popular. I mean, on Twitter, the popularity goes up along with their seniority until you get to the the long timers. Um, and this would be David Bednar and uh, Dieter Ogdorf. Um, Quentin L. Cook is pretty much where the, the cutoff is because Henry B. Eyring, uh, M. Russell Ballard, these old timers, they... Um, that's where it gets really interesting is then you start to see, well, I like this guy more than that guy. Uh, or I don't really like Dallin H Oaks. Dallin H Oaks. He's been one of the most outspoken, um, anti LGBTQ, um, people in the, in the first presidency. And he trails behind 199,000 followers on Twitter. But, Within the um, older generation on Facebook, 686,000 seems like he resonates more with that older generation. Interesting. Very interesting. And of course, the church, the, the church has official uh, accounts on Facebook and Twitter. They do not have official mm-hmm. accounts on Instagram. They don't have anything on TikTok. So those are for the much younger generation. Yeah. Probably now, right. I Facebook- do want to point out that on Facebook... They have a legal disclaimer on each and every one of these um, uh, what uh, profiles that says kindness is the essence of celestial life. That's a quote. They want only kind, uh, happy words to be uh, put in the post. 
they also put a huge legal disclaimer following uh, this call for only kind thoughts and uplifting um, comments. Uh, then the legal disclaimer says any words that are posted here become the property of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we can do whatever we want with those. Okay, so it sounds like at the end of every post that they have keep, sweet, pray, and obey. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds, that like, yeah. sounds like what you're telling me. <laughs> that sounds like, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, either that or the church is just full of a bunch of snowflakes that can't handle a uh, a differentiating uh, differentiating point of view. <laughs> now, we That's don't have for a super deep analysis, but I wonder if the number of followers also relates to how active that they are. We don't have time to get into that today, but I no. wonder if they're more active if that is generating more followers, more mm -hmm. or less. Well, one way or another, this was a really exciting thing for me to delve into. Um, very interesting. I'm just fascinated by little statistics like that. So... <laughs> I was I was glad to to take on this challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, very nice. Well, uh, we will uh, we will be keeping an eye on all of these official accounts of the church, and mm -hmm. uh, we are watching them. And any good uh, tweets that it's very hard for any I think newsworthy tweets to come out or Facebook posts to come out because these are heavily sanitized. I don't imagine mm -hmm. that Russell L. Nelson, when he's at home after a meeting in a limousine, that he's in the back seat typing this out with his thumbs. So I'm just going to go out yeah. on. He doesn't really strike you as being the type of granddad that likes to scroll Facebook. <laughs> so I think these are heavily curated. So um, mm -hmm. we will be watching them. And it's very hard to get news sources out of these official ones because they're so carefully, uh, they're very careful about the public facing persona mm -hmm. that they put out. Very true. And you're not going to see, you know, uh, an apostle who is just going to take a selfie on a golf course and post it and say, hey, this is a beautiful day today. Enjoy life. Praise God. You're not going to see something like that that is at a more personal level. All of these are going to be liturgical, uh, you know, kind of faith promoting posts at all yeah. times. Um, and, and this is a, a great place to mine for memes. You know, this is where they where they put those kinds of things. I, I'm going to put a a, he, a, a, what, what, a headshot with a quote on it. You know, this is the what the sort of thing you're going to get on those. Very nice, very nice. So, well, thanks for doing that research. That's very good stuff, and we're going to be we're going to be following <laughs> up on that. Uh, our next article uh, is on the church has just in the last couple of days announced changes to tithings and offerings and donations and some categories are being discontinued. And we got this off of LDSliving.com and this was published uh, by Haley Lunsberg and Jake Franson on June 14, 2022. Mm -hmm. So now, uh, Al, when you go to submit your tithing or fast offering online, you can still submit it to your bishop with the old, uh, you know, with the old paper, yeah, and, the paper envelope. and envelope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you have the carbon copy and all that, but most people are in our modern society are paying it online so when you log the church's donations page on the church's website there's now a new message that appears and oh. which you're going to pay your tithing and the changes include the following so there's a new donation category that is called general offerings and that's going to replace several other categories including book of mormon temple construction perpetual education and a couple of other discontinued categories so they're mm -hmm. they're rolling basically six categories that you used to be able to donate and say to the church, I'm giving you this money and it is for this purpose. So dismissing all those categories and just putting it into one general offerings category. And also, yeah. there used to be a place where 
it was called other. So you would put in your tithing. And if it was with a tithing slip, you could say, I'm going to donate this money to the church. You could, it would say other, and you could write something in. Well, yeah. Like other. if you want to donate to like the, the fund uh, for your kids going to, uh, you know, young women's camp or something. Yeah. You right. can specify it there. Yes. Now that category is going to be renamed local and the authorized member financed activities category is going to be discontinued. So this article shows the screenshot of what it used to look like, the old image of the church. Mm -hmm. And now the new one is much more simplified and much less choices. And the church has sent out a letter to state mission and district presidencies that says that starting on June 10th, the, all these changes are going to be taking place, which was just a couple of days ago. And this, the reason that the church is giving now, this is, this is the most important thing to me. Okay. What is the reason that the church is giving for the reduction of church categories? And according to the article, it is quote, to streamline the recording of donations by ward clerks end quote. So really? it used to be that ward clerks, when you, you know, put in a tithing, you, you, the ward clerks would have to figure out all the categories and put it in there. Mm -hmm. So I guess it was somewhat time consuming. I didn't think it really took that much time, but yeah, it seems, seems like an time. afternoon, an afternoon on a Sunday, like for an hour or two with two ward clerks there. That, that's what it would take. Right. Now, here's where that's the article. But now, of course, we need to have expert analysis. Al, why do you think the church is changing the tithing categories, removing so many categories and just making it much more uh, general instead of specific? Well, until they give uh, an official reason that uh, goes counter to the, what this, my opinion is as good as anybody. I'm thinking that the church is just trying to say, hey, we can do whatever we want with whatever you give us. So donations to the church that's for the church to decide where they go um, whether it goes to investments whether it goes to humanitarian aid what it goes to is none of my business after i hand that over to the bishop right um so what's interesting and we joked about this in our, our before the episode it's that the church mm -hmm. is becoming more transparent yeah about being less transparent exactly <laughs> <laughs> So, the other Ballard said in his famous Q&A, he's as transparent as he knows how to be mm -hmm. when, when it comes to difficult issues. And we're getting the redu reduction of, <laughs> hey, we're, you just give it to us and, you know, we'll take care of it. From, we got it from here. Thank you for thank you for the donation. We'll mm -hmm. take it from here and use prophetic insights. And the presiding bishop will determine where this money needs to go. I know you think that you want mm -hmm. this money to go to X, Y or Z, but mm -hmm. That's not where it's going to go. It's going to go where we want it to go. Yeah. You are entrusting it into the church's hands to make the best uh, discretionary decision for your funds. Right. And don't, don't, the church is, I think, giving up a little bit of the facade. I, you know, I never really believed when, you know, when I was, when, when I was paying tithing, you know, when I paid tithing, I never really believed that whatever I was checking the box, honestly, in my heart of hearts, that it was actually going to there. Yeah, and I, I think most members probably just, they trust the church. Right. They, you know, they, they don't, it doesn't have to go there. If it doesn't, if the church has a surplus of uh, Book of Mormon copies for the missionaries to hand out, then maybe, you know, anything donated to the Book of Mormon fund can be filtered over to the humanitarian fund in order to help where there was a tsunami last week or something. You know, that, I, I think most people uh, that are in the church, they're okay with the church uh, channel and funds around where it's needed. Sure. But I, I just would like to see a little bit more of a transparent declaration. That, okay, this is what the church has done. This is how much uh, we got donated for 
uh, Book of Mormon copies for our missionaries to distribute. And because we had a surplus, the church decided it was more in the best interest of humanitarian efforts to give that to uh, humanitarian aid to relieve the suffering of those, of those that were affected by a tsunami. So I'd like to see the church have that kind of transparency instead of saying, we don't know how to be any more transparent with you. This is none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> now, the church, even back the last time the record tithing donations, I was listening to do D. Michael Quinn podcast was 1915. So back in church released uh, how much tithing was given. And I want to say it was somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars back in 1915. So they have yeah. in time past said, this is how much money we've gotten. Mm-hmm. So direction back in 1915 to have that kind of transparency but now that's not the lord's direction to have that kind of transparency what changed yeah exactly and that yeah i guess we we really need to get um some uh some real true blue mormons on here to to ask them some questions about that get some perspective like what does the average church member think um the church takes in in tithing over the course of a year I'd be interested to see if they if they're aware that that figures actually in the billions. Yeah, according to uh, Lars Nielsen uh, from the yeah. Enzyme, that is somewhere in the neighborhood of eight billion dollars a year that is brought in in tithing. Now, the yeah. church about six years ago they updated the tithing and offering paper slips. The old slip, mm-hmm. uh, the old slip had some verb on the bottom. Updated in the new slip. Now, the new slip says that. Though reasonable, this is what the new slip says, quote, though reasonable efforts will be made globally to use church donations as designated in the categories, all donations become the church's property and will be used at the church's sole direction to further the church's overall mission and, quote, and to build the kingdom of God, Al. Oh, yeah. So I, I added that extra part in there. That's not what that's not in there. But yeah, okay. the category. <laughs> I said, end quote, I added that in there. So That's the, inferred. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To build up the kingdom of God on earth. So the, the church is acknowledging that, hey, you know, we, we're going to try. You, you, said, you, you said you wanted to go to the World Mission Fund. You wanted to the general missionary. You wanted to go to perpetual mm-hmm. education. Well, we'll make reasonable efforts to it. But if we don't feel like it, then we're not going to do it. Yeah. Um, so now I have to ask, um, how far are we willing to take this? <laughs> So, you know, if I, if I have uh, desires for the church to make efforts towards, um, you know, getting some new toys in the nursery room, you know, will they make reasonable efforts towards that? Because um. <laughs> it has the other specify, but again, the other specify category that's going away and it's going to be called local. Mm-hmm. You know, what I really want to see on the tithing slip is just, OK, this is what I'd like to uh, category mm-hmm. one enzyme peak. Just straight into the investment fund. Uh, category two, mm-hmm. uh, general authority pensions. Yeah. <laughs> Cate- category three, uh, mission presidents, children's uh, uh, t- free tuition at BYU. Mm-hmm. Uh, category four, uh, anti-LGBTQ lobbying and legislation. Uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I guess I could go yeah. on. Exactly. Category, five, uh, yeah. category five, a luxurious uh, uh, mega uh, mall. Um, retail speculation. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I could. I guess I could yeah. continue. Those are the categories. Yeah, I like. this is this is exactly what I'm talking about. Is that how far are we willing to take this? <laughs> <laughs> that's the categories I'd like to see. Now that's yeah. something I can sink my teeth into. 
Mm -hmm, for sure. Because, <laughs> I mean, just once, if, if I go back to, to church and start uh, paying um, donations to the church, I want to be able to specify, I want this to go to heal the suffering of the LGBTQ kids that have been kicked out of their parents' houses because uh, they came out. So... Yeah. Or kicked out of BYU and they lost a whole year or several years with the credits. Yeah, exactly. Go and reimburse those kids for all that uh, money that they've spent in tuition. Right. Uh, yeah. So I, I just find it very interesting. And I think the church knows that the I think it's a, the church knows that the members know that the, the categories don't really mean anything. They they, yeah. they, they I mean, the church is going to do with the money what they're going to do with it. And it's just an acknowledgement that, hey, well, let's stop yeah. the shell game and let's just come out and say hey you're going to give me and uh we're mm -hmm. just gonna with it what we feel is uh the most important thing to do with it. and i think most people are fine with that and i i think it's just a matter of like i mean how many people do you honestly think have ever filled out any of the other uh lines besides uh the standard tithing fast offerings and maybe humanitarian aid you know but yeah i mean yeah let's just do an other it's okay well I, it Think about other churches, Al. They pass around a collection plate. You put some money into it. There's no categories. No. I'm, Just, yeah. Hey, this goes to the church. I trust the church to use this however the church sees best. Now, we understand that the pastor needs to have a roof over his head. Sure. We understand that there's going to be beggars that come to the church's door. Let's look after them, too. The church is going to need a new roof. Use the money for that, too. You know, so we, we trust the church to do as uh, the church sees fit with these donations. Sure. Absolutely. You just think, you know, think back, you know, what, why, why not be more transparent? We talked about that in that episode with the uh, reorganized church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, now the community of Christ that, that yeah. says, Hey, we bring in $15 million worth of tithing per year. This is exactly how much money that we bring in. This is what we're mm -hmm. using for. And uh, this is a complete report. And this is our deficits. This is our pensions. This is our liabilities. This is our mortgages. This is everything. And how mm -hmm. faith promoting that is. And most most churches, uh, you know, put out a financial statement that shows people what, what the money is being used for. And mm -hmm. I just wonder why the church doesn't do it. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I call on, I call on that to, them to change that. Yeah, exactly. I, and, you know, and unless they do. I think that you're going to start to see a growth in the community of Christ church because anybody that's looking to leave the LDS church and is looking for a place to land without, you know, giving up their love for the book of Mormon, the love for Joseph Smith for, you know, their love for Mormonism. I think that there's a good place for them within the, um, especially if they're in the LGBTQ community yeah. or a supporter of that, there's a home for them in the community of Christ. There certainly is. And one of the nice things, honestly, about the, the community of Christ also is that they don't have they never canonized the Book of Abraham. So you don't have mm -hmm. to. It. And the Book of Mormon also, you don't have to believe in it as a historical record. They leave a lot of these options, uh, yeah. up, up for yourself so that you don't have to. Sure. But you don't have to believe in a literal global flood. You don't have to believe that dogs were always dogs and monkeys were always monkeys. Yeah, they're 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 a lot more uh, flexible with with their people. Yeah, they are. Um, okay, uh, that's that's it on tithing. Let's continue on. Our next article is uh, was on uh, what's LDSliving.com. The Philippines temple now has its Moroni, but increasing number of temples don't have the statue. And this was an article that was put out by Jake Franson on June 15, 2022. 
So the church's Facebook page shows a big Moroni that's going to be put on top of the Philippines, a uh, new Philippines temple. But this article points out that an increasing number of recent temples do not have an angel Moroni statue. As mm-hmm. of the article's publication, which was just a few days ago, Al, there were 64 renderings of planned temples, and 53 mm-hmm. of them did not feature the angel Moroni statue. So yeah. angel Moroni is uh, no longer invoked. He's getting the boot. He's being fired at an alarming mm-hmm. rate. Over almost 90% of new temples are not going to have Angel Moroni on the top. What yeah. happened Angel Moroni? What, why is he getting fired, Al? I don't know. That's a, that's a good question because Angel, Angel Moroni has been kind of a, a, a Mormonism symbol uh, at least in the last uh, 50 to 60 years. I mean, this has kind of been uh, what the church used for a symbol to replace the cross, right? Like, I mean, instead of believing in the, the death, uh, what the, the death art artifact of that killed Jesus um, that the Christians have adopted, have adopted um, the church, went and um, created their own thing and said, well, you know, we don't want to worship the death of Christ. We want to worship his life. Well, let's put up the angel Moroni, you know, and that was kind of their whole symbol is they put him on top of, well, the Nauvoo temple. I don't, I don't know that Kirtland ever had one. I don't but, believe so, no. Yeah. Nauvoo had the, the, the weird looking flying uh, angel that he was sideways and right. his trumpet was pointed towards the ground. Um, but, uh, then Salt Lake, I mean, Salt Lake, that one's a work of art. Sure. The, the Moroni that was on top of the Salt Lake temple, and I hope they will put it back on. I don't, that's going to be real interesting to see too, D-Base is will they put, um, Angel Moroni back on top of the Salt Lake temple when they're done with this whole, uh, you know, the renovations. So I, I imagine. They will. I, I find it very interesting that Moroni is getting downgraded because if you remember back to the legend mm-hmm. of Brigham Young, Moroni himself came to the Mantai Temple's dedication, which was yeah, one of he the did. First. <laughs> yeah, yeah and you he know, hoofed it on he gets foot. around. <laughs> yeah, he does. He gets around and he hoofed it on foot. Uh, Moroni is very concerned with these temples, and maybe that's why he's a symbol. You know, first of all, we've discussed this in previous times. The temple mm-hmm. is the, the most visible symbol of the church, it is the symbol yeah. of church mm-hmm. not the yeah. book of mormon not mormon missionaries not anything else so if mm-hmm. you have your number one symbol and the most recognizable aspect of that symbol is mm-hmm. the, the golden angel moroni's on the top and yeah. then you're rid of it something is changing I, i'm going to speculate mm-hmm. here al that when i went through the washington dc temple a couple of weeks ago i noticed that book of mormon related artwork in the church in general is decreasing and I think that this is a larger pattern of Moroni also getting the boot. And I think it's because yeah. of, I, I don't think that the Book of Mormon necessarily translates that well to people of other countries. The Book of Mormon is a very, mm-hmm. uh, it's a very white centered. It's a very, yeah. um, very America centric. Yeah. It's a very America centered, uh, you know, the, the Christopher Columbus came to here. This is the chosen land, the chosen people. Um, you know, the, the dark and the dark and loathsome Lamanites, it's very white centered and America centered. And if you're using Moroni, who's really a symbol of the Book of Mormon as, or, you know, as your symbol, I don't think that it has as much resonance outside of the United States and outside of a white male culture that the church, you know, I, I just don't think it has that kind of uh, appeal. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's and so. 
I know that like uh, the whole reason they put uh, Moroni up flying from the Nauvoo Temple with uh, the Trump in his in his lips. Um, that was Joseph Smith saying, well, this is a fulfillment of prophecy from the book of Revelations and, you know, the angel flying through the heavens, having the everlasting gospel and, you know, spreading that to the, the church or to the world. So th- I think that's why they uh, set Moroni up as this big um, symbol in the first place. It's just really sad to see them step away from that um, because I think you're probably right. I think they are doing stepping away from it, number one, because it's not a provable part of history and it's becoming even more disproven as time goes on. And I think they are trying to get more and more mainstream in their Christian uh, approach. So I, I, it's sad to see Mara and I go away, especially since he's been such a, a key symbol within the church for decades and decades. Right, yeah. Emphasizing Moroni on the top of the temple emphasizes that he's a real historical figure that lived a real historical life. Yeah. And the church, I think, wants to get away from making the Book of Mormon uh, historical, uh, you know, the historical claims of the Book of Mormon. You're not going to see in general conference people get up uh, anymore and say, you know, Nephi's voyage across the oceans was a miraculous, uh, you know, was a miraculous reality. I think that they want to leave a room open tacitly for members to say that I believe that the Book of Mormon is a good spiritual book. It teaches good morals. It teaches us to believe in God and worship. And, um, you know, it leads me to live a good life. And I don't want to have to believe in, you know, uh, transoceanic submarines in 2000 BC or a literal power of Babel for uh, the brother of Jared. I want to be able to believe in the Book of Mormon without having to believe in the historical aspects of that so that therefore we're going to de-emphasize church artwork temple artwork and even the angel moroni himself so that there's a less you know so that you're not beating it over the 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 members heads yeah um there wasn't any article to to point this out but i do want to take a moment just to point out that uh today was the groundbreaking ceremony for the uh temple that's going up in smithfield utah uh-huh. And um, I did see the the rendering on that, um, and that one's missing Moroni from the top. Um, I'm a little surprised that that one's missing Moroni because I would think that Cache Valley would, you know, it's a very heavily Mormon area. Um, so you know, with the with the Smithville Temple going in there, um, it it kind of has a look like the the Nauvoo Temple where it's you know big blocky and has that big one spire on the end, kind of like the St. George too, is uh-huh. that similar style. Um, so it's going to be interesting, but yeah, no Moroni. So right. We're, let me we're going to start seeing him go away. Let me just see one last, say one last thing about Moroni's uh, importance yeah. in the Latter-day Saint faith, and that's as a member of the military, your dog tags and your gravestones, mm-hmm. you have to ha- pick a symbol that is associated with the faith uh, for your dog tags and your gravestone, and there's like 70 different symbols that you can pick from. You know, Christians, a lot of Christians have crosses, mm-hmm. have the Star of David. There's yeah. the- a symbol it's a big a and the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints their symbol is moroni blowing his trumpet is that really the best symbol that the church wants to put forward for its forward-facing self do they want to be associated with moroni or do they want to be associated as i don't know as a as a christian church and and jesus is at the head i I think that's why they did the rebranding with the new logo uh, as the christus being centric to the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints because i believe that the logo before was the angel moroni um so this is this is part of that whole rebranding things just seems like they're 
they're kicking Moroni out. Right. Um, very well. Very good. Uh, we'll, we'll be interested to see what happens with that Smith. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, so we're on to the next one. Yes, sir. We, we are on to um, our Latter-day Saints disproportionately gay. This one's from timesandseasons.org by Stephen C. from June 11th, 2022. Mm-hmm. So this guy, he's actually a, uh, a, a very faithful uh, Latter-day Saint, but he's noticed that there's a, there seems to be a high percentage of uh, or high ratio of uh, homosexuality within um, LDS, uh, specifically LDS men. And he so he did some research into it and found that, yeah, um, people with larger families, um, the more older brothers you have, the more your percentage increases of being gay um, if, if you're a male. There doesn't seem to be the same ratio amongst females for homosexuality. So that's kind of a, a different topic. But for this one, it's really interesting because I know that like, San Francisco used to be the, the, the gay capital of the world. And now it seems like Salt Lake City's become a, a big gay center as well. Um, maybe even surpassed uh, San Francisco as far as the ratios of homosexuals. But there is a huge community in Salt Lake City. And uh, let's see, this, uh, this person, um, he's an academic, uh, very similar to Dive's. He taught uh, some classes and he, he gets up to in front of his class and he'll, he'll ask, you know, what percentage do you think, um, what, what percentage do you think of the population is homosexual? And a lot of people will ask or, or will suggest, well, maybe 15 to 30 percent or even, you know, maybe 25 to 40 percent, even higher figures. Um he, it, most people are shocked to find out that really the percentage of the population that's homosexual is between one and three percent. There's, they're not really sure, because I mean that's just going off of how many people have uh, answered from you know the sample, and you know how many people felt comfortable answering. Uh, so, you know, this is kind of where we're at in in the world. Um, but yeah, we're, we're you know in that kind of percentage, and then within. Um, the LDS church, you're getting some really high uh, estimates, like between 15, um, let's see, no, was it uh, 15%? Yeah, 15%. About, about 15% of BYU in the latest survey showed, and we, we discussed this in the Julian Orr uh, episode, about 15% yes, we did. Mm-hmm. is that they're on the LGBTQ spectrum. Yeah. So, and, he, yeah, he's throwing a couple of charts here that show that, um, let's see, you have N number of older brothers as the, you know so to, to start off your your chance of being gay baseline two percent if you have one older brother 2.66 percent two older brothers 3.54 percent all the way up to seven brothers once you get seven older brothers you have a 14.72 percent chance of being gay and um you know this is Boy, this is re- really interesting research that this guy's done. Um, and so why do we have such a, a high rate of homosexuality within uh, Mormonism and the LDS community? Well, because Mormons like to breed like rabbits. They're trying to populate and replenish the earth. And so, yeah, you're getting a lot of these um, conservative, right-wing, uh, Christian, or you know, re- ultra-religious, not even necessarily Christian, but ultra-religious um, uh churches or uh, groups of people i should say um 
they're having a lot of kids and you're getting high rates of homosexuality coming out from them. And ironically, these are the groups that seem to be most hostile towards homosexuals. Right. Yeah. So if you have seven brothers in your family, there's a 42 percent chance that at least one of them will be uh, will be gay. 42 percent chance. That means if you have two families, both of them have seven brothers, seven boys in it. You have at least, you know, one out of two of those families is going to have a gay kid. Yes. Uh, by by percentage choice. So, yes. Yeah. He asked the question at the top. Are Latter-day Saints disproportionately gay? And he answers the question as yes. Mm-hmm. The, yes, because of what is the exact te- technical term? They call it the fraternal birth of birth order effect, which yeah. is well documented. That's right. Yeah, there is a word for it. <laughs> that definitely takes us right into which is a BYU approving its first openly gay uh, demonstration. So BYU students and faculty mm-hmm. gather in first ever approved LGBTQ demonstration. This was on June 12, 2022 in the Daily Universe. That's BYU's own newspaper by Mikhail Park. So students and, and faculty gathered in Brigham Young Square uh, for on June 11th for the first ever approved uh uh, LGBTQ demonstration. This is a massive step forward. Oh, yeah. I, I never thought the day would come. Never thought. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so this was six months in the making in order to get the permits and the approval for this to be able to go through. And they had a lot of different speakers from the BYU uh, USGA president, also the Cougar Pride Center. Mm-hmm. And this, this event was officially approved through the new demonstration policy that BYU implemented in 2022. And it's showing mm-hmm. BYU faculty members who are out there uh, supporting and it's people you know, praying. There's, there's rainbow flags. There's lots of there's dozens of people in, in the pictures. And, uh, you know, there was the, one of the quotes there from the associate dean, Nathan Ward, he said, quote, there was a lot of stake writing on this event. So I'm really glad that it turned out the way that it did. End quote. So, I mean, we're seeing very affirming. Uh, we're just seeing, you know, something that we've never seen before. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I have to wonder, maybe this is BYU's way of counteracting the, the chalk um, on the sidewalks that, you know, boy, there was that battle going on uh, not too long ago. That where they'd go out and they'd chalk up the sidewalks and, you know, all the uh, faithful Latter-day Saints would go and wash it off. And then the uh, LGBTQ supporters would go and uh, put the chalk right back up there again right after they were done. Oh, my goodness. I, I, this is probably BYU's way of saying, yeah, just stop chalking our sidewalks, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the article, they said the crowd stood, hugged each other and sang a popular primary song, Love One Another. And, um, you know, everybody who was part of this event um, said that they really felt great about it. Yeah. So it seems like a very positive step forward for the church. It really seems to be. And this is something that I've noticed is that within the church, I think you have a lot of people. And this goes back to what I was uh, saying before, is you've got a lot of people that are supportive of those who are different from them, more so than I think the church realizes. And maybe the church is starting to realize that. So I think that's a, a good thing. It speaks highly of the membership of the church that this sort of thing is is taking place and we're able to take that kind of step forward. Um, so hopefully the church will catch up. I mean, this is a big difference from Ernest Wilkinson, the president back in, I want to say the, <laughs> excuse me, the early 1960s, who said yeah. if in an official devotional uh, of the opening of fall semester he said if there are any homosexuals in the audience please make yourself known so that you can be removed from this university we don't mm-hmm. want 
back to the student population and we will give you a refund on your tuition. Talk yeah. about a 180 change. And and that's the other side that I have to wonder, because do you remember a couple of years ago, they uh, they said, yeah, it's OK to uh, be LGBTQ on uh, on BYU campus. And so a lot of kids came out and then right afterwards, the um after those kids came out, they got kicked out of BYU. It's like, so is this a witch hunt? Is this more of that same witch hunt? I wonder. I, I do have to wonder. Really? Yes. Yeah, so what they did is three years ago, they updated the honor code and removed some of the prohibitions against LGBTQ students, for instance, holding hands, mm-hmm. they, kissing another person. Those are not against the law of chastity as the church teaches. They removed those. LGBTQ students said, okay, fine, we will go out on dates, we will hold hands, and we will kiss a member of the same sex. And then those people ended up getting in trouble. Yeah, for sure. And so that's what, that's why I'm afraid might happen. I really hope that BYU um, learns a lesson. I hope that they're starting to figure it out, um, that you can't be mean to people and still uh, be popular. <laughs> I don't. I really hope so. I hope you're right, Al. I don't think. I think this is hopefully we're entering a new era and a different page mm-hmm. of, uh, of what we're going to see. And hopefully, we've left a lot of those um, really evil, evil BYU times. Uh, hopefully, with the uh, electroshock therapy um, yeah. and, and the other divisive rhetoric, where um, you know they put ads out, and this is they put ads out in the paper, uh, kind of mm-hmm. uh, kind of in an entrapment back in the 1960s to find gay students so that they could remove them. I hope we've left that far, far behind. Yeah, let's hope so. I mean, it, enough is enough. Yeah. Yeah. The idea we don't need to be protesting anymore. Let's just, you know, open our arms finally. You know, why do we have to have protests? Yeah. This is this is just a matter of be nice, be tolerant. <laughs> let's, re- let's remove the pray the gay away. Let's remove yeah. the gay conversion therapy. Let's remove yeah. the witch hunts. Let's mm-hmm. stop the, the, the rhetoric and... um Let's just, uh, I, you know, do what Jesus, I think, would, would have us do. Yeah, for sure. Um, that takes us on to our next article here, Al, which is. Yep. And we've only got two left. So yes. hang with us. Uh, this one, uh, we're going a little bit more lighthearted, I, I guess, um, with the with these next articles. This one, first one's from the DailyMail.uk. Uh, Erica Tempesta. Uh, wrote this one on June 17, 2022, titled Mormon Marriage Addict at 53, who has tied the knot 11 times, says she is simply in love with love, but admits she started marrying her boyfriend so she could have sex while still following her religion strict rules. So we've got, <laughs> yeah, this, uh, this lady whose name is Monette Diaz. Um, she's a Utah based interior designer, mother of four. She's had over 28 proposals, marriage proposals in her life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 28, over 28 people have asked her to marry them and 11 times so far, maybe 12 in the near future. Cause she's still looking for that, for, for her one and only. <laughs> Oh, I haven't even been on 28 dates in my life, much less 28 proposals. Yeah. So 28 dates uh, in your life to 28 proposals. She has. Yeah. And every single time she she answered uh, 11 of these guys, um, two of which were the same guy. So she married. She remarried two of her exes. Okay, But 11 times she said yes. So far, she's still going for number 12. Uh, so she's been um, 
let's see, on this uh, TLC reality TV show, Addicted to Marriage, she actually broke up with her 11th husband while, while filming this Addicted to Marriage uh, show. But she's uh, still yeah. optimistic. And she, she keeps saying, well, you know, I don't intend to get divorced from all these guys. I just, you know, I keep hoping it's going to work. But it, as we go in, it starts to look kind of sad. Um, let me tell you a little bit about, I, I did some read up on these. And they, they uh, this article, you can see it in the show notes, but I'm not going to go into each and every one of her husbands. But boy, they're, they're kind of ranging. She had, um, let's see, her first husband, she married right out of high school. <laughs> It lasted, and that marriage lasted for 10 years. I mean, so she she had a, a pretty good uh, run for that first marriage. Um, but she, uh, let's see, uh, she did have premarital sex with her last two husbands. Um, and she admitted that. <laughs> so, you know, the whole purpose of, well, she's getting married just so she can have sex. But, you know, it, it seems like she's also kind of growing out of that thought that, well, she, she can have sex anyway. But she's still looking for her, you know, Mr. Darcy, you know, she's got this, uh, <laughs> this you know, she, uh, let's see, number nine, uh, she married, they, that one was noteworthy because he was a charismatic kind of a bad boy. She's like, there's some people that you probably shouldn't be with, even though you can't help being attracted to them. And so that's how she described number nine. And they said like her sister, her daughter, she's got four kids, like I said. They, they can't even remember the names of all of her husbands. Oh, she, my gosh. I mean, it's it's kind of a train wreck. It's it's a really <laughs> sad story. But, yeah, so she's um, – I think the real sad thing is that she has literally spent – and this is a quote from the, uh, from the article. It said she spent her whole life trying to force these men to live up to being this elusive soulmate she has in her head. So I really think we've got somebody with a Mr. Darcy complex here. Well, it says, in the, it says in the article that Monette chalked up her first nine marriages to her desire to have sex while abiding by her strict Mormon religion. Mm-hmm. Is that what the church teaches? Well, this is kind of the thing that we got back to um, the BYU students that would run down to uh, Las Vegas for the weekend, um, get married by Elvis on the strip, have sex all weekend long, get it annulled on Monday, and then drive back up to Provo. And no need for repentance. No need to, you know, bring the bishop into this. No one's the wiser. Oh, my goodness. That is that a legendary story, or does that actually happen? Uh, it has happened in the past. I don't know that it still happens, but it seemed like this was a thing back in the 80s and 90s was the thing to do at BYU. Oh, my goodness. Um, and it was the loophole. It's kind of, the, I think, the current uh, thing that's been all over uh, TikTok and uh, social media is soaking uh, it's just these ways of, oh, well, technically, I'm still abiding by the church's teachings. And so, you know, to, it's hard to argue with her. Technically, she is abiding by the church's teaching. She's not having um, extramarital sex except for <clears throat> with her last two husbands. But up until number nine, yeah, she was uh, completely <laughs> temple worthy. Well, um, you know, Brigham Young married 56 wives. Joseph yeah. married uh, at least 30, maybe even as many as 40. Mm-hmm. So I guess she's um, in good company? Uh, maybe, except for that she's a woman. And oh. the, the teachings of the church is very much like uh, the king of Siam from the king and I, you know, that the flower <laughs> can't go from B to B to B. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 
You know, I'm just wondering, I'm trying to put myself in the position of the 12th husband here. Okay. Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> if, if you're the 12th guy with this woman, I mean, what, what, what is going through your mind? What are you thinking about? Are you thinking this is going to, this is going to last? I mean, oh. at what point do you say, you know what, uh, maybe uh, this, she's not interested in long-term marriage. I, <laughs> what a I'll, I'll tell you number 11, he didn't, he didn't even know about the other 10. Oh when, no. At, at first. I mean, he found out about them later and he's like, well, this is bizarre. And she's like, honestly, I didn't, I didn't intend for these marriages to last, but that seems to be the thing is she seems kind of self or aware of the fact that she is chasing this idyllic soulmate that really doesn't exist. Okay. I mean, and, and the reason it doesn't exist is, and these are things I learned in marriage prep classes at BYU is you gotta, you know, manage your expectations, buddy. You can't, you know, go and expect perfection from everybody else. Cause if you found the perfect person, they wouldn't find you perfect either. So they wouldn't, they'd kick you to the curb if you found that perfect ideal person that's just everything you ever wanted. And that's what she's looking for. So she, she, she keeps taking these men um, that are just people and trying to force them into this, you know, okay, well, he's going to, you know, keep a, a clean house for me and cook me dinner and rub my feet every night, all the while going out and working hard in the yard and i'll be able to sit there sipping a lemonade on the front porch watching him mow the lawn and you know his rippling muscles and everything it's, it's, <laughs> it's not uh, this is something that many people go through in their uh maybe 20s or you know i guess according to the uh, the next article in their early teens uh, <laughs> but yeah we go, we go through this but most people grow out of it and come to realize that okay maybe i am being unrealistic yeah, you know. yeah. Our, that does bring us our last article, which was on June 16, 2022, by the Babylon Bee, says yeah. that more Mormons are waiting to get married later in life, like until they're 22. Okay. I really need to advocate for the Babylon Bee. If uh, any of our listeners, listeners out there haven't read the Babylon Bee, this is like the Mormon equivalent of the onion. Okay. And so we like this article. We're not going to take it too seriously, but what it is is really funny because the, they do take on real, um, like the kinds of beliefs that the LDS have. <laughs> so, yeah, like uh, Brigham Young said that once you're 26 year old, years old and not married, you're a menace to society. Well, that's kind of the mentality, right? Is they're uh, going against that, saying, "Well, the, you know, these kids—they come home from their missions at the age of 20 or 21. They need to be getting married right away." And so, you know, now it's saying, well, actually, they're delaying marriage until 22. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah, if, that's, it, I mean, that, if you want the, the article, article. The article says that is a disturbing trend, Cal. Yeah, they call it a disturbing trend. The church uh, representative, which I, I can't remember the, the guy's name. My goodness. I, I it, here. So, uh, this it's is the most Mormon name. Say it. Yes. According to church spokesman Orson McKay Young Snibley Smith III. He that. said, quote, whatever happened to finding a nice broad shouldered girl and settling down at the ideal age of 16, end quote. <laughs> no, this is, <laughs> like you, you, our listeners out there, go to the BabylonB.com. You really need to peruse these. This, this is a blog of just um, parody articles, and it's hilarious. Yeah, and this is from the article as well. It said, at publishing time, leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were reeling from yet another study confirming that young Mormons are interested in having just one wife. 
Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But but yet again, the church has nothing to do with polygamy. (laughs) No, no, of course not. No, nothing whatsoever to do about it. I know. I'm just, this, it tickles me every time I read a a Babylon Bee article. So I'm glad that we were able to do one for this week's episode. Yeah, yeah, I don't think you can ruminate properly on the great and spacious beehive without the Babylon Bee, right, Al? Absolutely. So, well, it, you know, it's been a pl- we'll, maybe we'll bring the Babylon Bee back in the future too. You bet. It has been a pleasure to talk with you about the Great and Spacious Beehive, and mm-hmm. uh, we're really uh, looking forward to having our next episode. You know, we we didn't we didn't cover. Uh, we are on. Uh, we have an official website. It's uh, mormonnewsroundup.org, sure. and mm-hmm. we also have an email address. It's colob at mormonnewsroundup.org. That's K O L O B at mormonnewsroundup.org. That's with two N's. We're on Twitter at, at @newsmormon, and we also have a Patreon page if you want to get some. Uh, backstory about your humble host here, Alan D-Days, head on over to Patreon. You can unlock some bonus uh, uh, bonus content on there. We're also on Facebook and YouTube. And uh, we'd like to thank our sponsor at SignatureBooks.com and also our music with WeirdAlma.Bandcamp.com. That's right. Thank you very much, Weird Alma, who's going to play us out with a hit from um, straight out of uh, – oh, shoot, what was the name of it? Straight out of straight out of Camora. There it is, straight out of Camora with straight out of Camora in the title. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Steve's. Thanks. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Please allow me to introduce myself I'm a being with no moral constraints My number one goal is to hurt The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints 